Good evening. It's great to see you all this evening. I just began by saying a uh, privilege to be with you this evening and bring the word. And I'm really looking forward to what the Lord has prepared for us. Um, after pastor asked me to preach this evening, um, I thought much about what I should share and um, really about what would be most helpful for you and where I think everyone is at. And uh, while I don't know what all the needs in here are, obviously, um, I am aware that if you haven't been living under a rock somewhere, you've probably noticed that our world is not getting any better. Um, our culture is not getting any better. Um, Christianity, Christian values, um, which were once commonplace in our society, um, are now not only marginalized, um, but are increasingly deemed as things like hate speech or unhealthy for society. That marriage is between one man and one woman. That one's gender is determined at birth. That knowledge of what is true is not discovered by subjective experiences or a level of oppression, but is objective, fixed outside of us. The core problem with people is not their environment. Um, it's not mental illness. It is sin and a holy God. And that all of our hope is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. All of these things and much more are not only alien to our culture, but they are now increasingly laughed at um, and even sought to be silenced. And while we are not really there entirely yet as a culture, this certainly seems to be the direction in which things are, are heading. And so in my message this evening, I just want to step back with you and consider some foundational truths which are really essential for us. Um, lest we begin to be led astray by the world around us. You see, the dangers that we face are not simply the dangers outside, persecution and, and bad things um, the culture can do to us. The real danger is the temptations which will be coming at us. If we are not rooted in a solid understanding of the gospel and of God's purposes in the gospel— we will be tempted to make the gospel about other things in order to make it a bit more palatable to our culture. We'll be tempted to give in just a little on some biblical issue in order not to lose relevance with society and the culture around us. We'll be tempted to despair in the efficacy and power of the gospel since we're not seeing the results we would like to see. And the great danger of all of these temptations is that they are subtle ways in which we actually gut the gospel of its God-intended purposes. So what is that purpose? Well, I would like to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this evening, where Paul is actually dealing with this very thing in the church in Corinth. You may remember that Paul begins this letter by going after these factions that are in the church, uh, people saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of... Cephas, I'm of Christ. And while Paul rebukes them for these factions, he actually doesn't stay on that topic very long. Um, instead, he goes to the heart of the matter, which is that they, as a church, have adopted the world's value system, the culture's value system. They've allowed the values of the world around them to creep into the church. The factions are just the symptom of this. 
It's been said that the problem with the church in Corinth is not that they were the church of God in Corinth, with all this paganism around them, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. That's exactly what we have here. You see, in in, in Corinth, the atmosphere was such that in the public square where debate happened, eloquence and rhetoric outweighed the content and importance. Through the values of winning an audience, through your eloquent articulation of your system is what really mattered. And this is what Paul calls, in verse 17, words of eloquent wisdom. Paul, however, desired simply to preach Christ and him crucified. But the Corinthians had begun to desire more. They had begun to adopt their culture's definition of wisdom and their culture's value system of eloquence, of greatness, of power, And as a result, they were factioning in all these little groups. Not over gospel issues, but over worldly values. And as a result, they are threatening the gospel. Look at verse 17. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, so long as the the Corinthians let other things take center stage, they are threatening the gospel. Well, the next logical question is why? How so? How does, that, how does that work? What is it about the wisdom and values of the world that is such a threat to the gospel? And Paul will answer that question in the following verses that we are going to see this evening. The answer is because God's purpose in the gospel is not only to save sinners, although that's a massive purpose, a glorious purpose. God's purpose in the gospel is also to overturn the world's wisdom. Through the gospel, God is in the process of overturning all that the world hopes in and all that the world boasts in. And to attempt to hold on to the gospel and to worldly values will inevitably gut the gospel of this God-intended purpose. And so the goal this evening is just to simply unpack from this passage, how does that happen? What does that look like? In chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5, we will see three stages of God's plan to overturn the world's wisdom. And the first stage is in verses 18 through 25. God is in the process of overturning the wisdom of the wise through a foolish gospel message. Look at verse 18. For, explaining now how this works, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul calls the gospel the word of the cross. Now, when you hear the word cross, what comes to your mind is most certainly quite a bit different than what came to the minds of first century um, believers in Roman society. Uh, We wear crosses as necklaces and have crosses, crosses as decorations in our churches, in our homes. But how would it strike you if the next time you came to church... Um, You saw somebody wearing this nice necklace with a pendant of an electric chair hanging on it. Or, as one commentator asked, what would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of the massed graves of Auschwitz? It would be appalling. It would be disgusting. 
That gives us a better sense of how the cross was thought of in the Roman world. It was the worst form of execution, reserved for the absolute worst in Roman society. Cicero wrote, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. You didn't talk about the cross. And yet here we have Paul summarizing the gospel message as the word of the cross. According to Paul, the hope of the world depended on a message about a cross in which the Son of God died to accomplish redemption. Martin Hengel writes this, The heart of the Christian message, which Paul described as the word of the cross, ran counter not only to Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos of religion in the ancient times, and in particular to the ideas of God held by educated people. To believe that one pre-existent son of the one true God, the mediator at creation and the redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in out-of-the-way Galilee and as a member of the obscure people of the Jews, and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on the cross, could only be regarded as a sign of madness. That's how it was viewed. That's why Paul says in verse 18, this folly. According to the wisdom of fallen man, such a message was at the height of folly. To the ears of people at that time, the word cross came as a contradiction to all of their expectations as to what God is like, as to what God would do. Struck a death blow to man's own goodness and his desire for exaltation. And even today, the gospel cuts contrary to what the world deems is correct about God, what the world would expect of what God to be like in man's condition. And so verse 18 is really Paul's thesis statement. He's saying it divides humanity into these two ultimate groups, those who reject it and so perish, and those who receive it and so are saved. The question now is why? Why did God do it this way? It is because through the gospel, God is causing the world's wisdom to utterly fail. Look at verse 19. Four, another four, is given a reason. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 19 tells us God designed the gospel to intentionally contradict the wisdom of man. It has always been the plan and the purpose of God to thwart the pride of fallen man. And Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14 for proof. The wisdom of man represents all that fallen man would rely on to make sense out of life. All of his standards, all of his values. It's always self-centered, self-exalting, self-reliant, self-worshipping. If you doubt me, just do a quick survey uh, through the history of human thought. Um, it becomes pretty clear. And so God says, I will thwart their discernment. The idea is that it will be brought to nothing. He'll make it backfire on them. It's the idea that you spit in the wind and it comes right back on your face. Um, it's the idea. Man rejects the gospel because it contradicts his values of greatness and of fame and of power. It demands a rejection of human sufficiency, but the irony is that man's great wisdom will only lead him to reject what is his only hope. And so perish. It comes back on his own head. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, when the gospel is rejected, when it is spurned in the world, we are certainly grieved. We ought to be grieved. We ought to sorrow. We ought to pray for those we love. We ought to keep sharing it. But at the same time, we must remember that when the gospel is rejected, it hasn't failed. God is in the process of accomplishing one of his purposes, destroying the wisdom of fallen man by making it come to nothing. And the question for us this evening is, have we become ashamed of the gospel, which is so foolish in the eyes of the world? Have we started um, to forget that this message is not supposed to be popular? It's not supposed to be well-received. Have we started to shy away from speaking it because we are afraid that people will think we are out of touch? Well, Paul isn't finished. Look at verse 20. He gives us this string of questions about three categories of people. These are the people who know things, people who ought to have it figured out. Verse 20, where is the wise one? This is probably the Greek philosopher. He had a well-articulated philosophy. He had a man-made worldview. He can make sense out of life and propose solutions for man's problems. Then, Paul says, where is the scribe? It's probably the Jewish counterpart. He's the Old Testament theologian. Then Paul says, where is the debater of this age? The one who had great skill and oratory and eloquence and promoting a certain philosophical system. And Paul says, where are they? The idea is, when standing side by side with the gospel, what do these people amount to? Which of these people even came close to grasping and understanding God's marvelous plan of redemption? Which of these even close to, came close to grasping the way in which God would redeem fallen man and secure all glory for himself. The way in which sin would be judged and the sinner delivered. The way in which God's justice would be vindicated in his crucified Messiah and his mercy for sinners secured. Which of them even came close? And the answer is what? None of them did. And even beyond this, the best of the world's wisdom fails to produce the most important thing, which is what? Reconciliation with your maker. It fails. It cannot lead people there. And so Paul says, at the end of this verse, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What's the answer? Yes, he has. The idea is he has already demonstrated how futile and foolish the world's greatest displays of wisdom actually are. He's done it through the gospel. And if what we have seen so far isn't enough, Paul goes on in verse 21 to explain a bit further just how God has exposed the wisdom of the world for the folly that it is. Look at verse 21. For, it's another four, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, it was actually the wise plan of God that it would be impossible for the world to come to a right knowledge of God on their own. 
Can you imagine if man could come to a right knowledge of God on his own? If he could figure it out, how to reconcile himself with God, what God is like totally in himself, by himself, and thus come to God? Only the elites would get in, only the smartest of the smart. Certainly wouldn't be man, nor would it be you. Moreover, can you imagine the arrogance and the pride it would produce in man? Man could figure out God, and God would then have to owe something to man. No. God, in his great wisdom, intentionally, Paul says, made it impossible. Look what it says. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It was his plan. Man could not come to God on their own, through their own fallen, depraved wisdom. But God has also made the world's wisdom folly in another way. Look at how the rest of the verse goes. 21. It pleased God. That is, it brought him great pleasure. This is the same word that's used for Jesus' baptism, in whom I am well pleased, full of delight, pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It brings God much pleasure and delight to save those who simply believe in a message but is deemed foolish by the world. Your translation might say something like, it pleased God through the folly of preaching. Um, the focus here really isn't on the method of preaching, but on the, on the content, on the thing that is preached, on the foolish gospel. So those who are wise in the world's eyes are not those who get in. It is those who are not, those who are not powerful, not the rich, not the wise, but those who simply recognize their desperate condition and see in the gospel the glory and the wisdom and the power of God, and so believe. It pleases God to save those people. Why? Because he gets all the glory, not man. Well, that brings us to our next point. Verses 22 through 25. Through the gospel, God is also graciously saving believers. So he's causing the world's wisdom to fail, and he's also graciously saving believers. Now, the question we are left with is this. Where in the world do these kind of people come from? These kind of believers that we just read about. I mean, if humanity is really in such a grave condition that we just said, if they're really blind by their own wisdom to the wisdom of God, then how would any believe this message? After what we've seen in the previous verse, the astonishing thing is not that people reject the gospel. The astonishing thing is that any should believe it in the first place. If man is indeed this opposed to God, and if God is indeed this opposed to proud humanity, how in the world would any come to believe in this foolish message and so be saved? And we get the answer in verses 22 through 25. Look at verse 22. Paul zooms into the pride of fallen man again. And Paul here shows us exactly what the wisdom of the world looks like. Look what he says, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews, we see this repeatedly in the Gospels, they demand signs. They come to Jesus and Ask for a sign before they will believe in him. What's wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with signs? Jesus does many signs. 
There's nothing wrong with signs in themselves. The problem is going on here, why Jesus rebukes them, and while Paul also rebukes them here, is that in demanding a sign, these people are making themselves the judge in the criteria to which Jesus must submit if they are to believe in him. See how that works? They're saying, if you meet our standards, if you do a sign which we deem worthy of faith, then we will believe. You see the arrogance? People still do this today. God, if you do X, then I will believe in you. If you heal my child, if you cure my cancer, if you give me another job, then I will believe you. It is utter arrogance on the part of man. D.A. Carson put it this way. Thus the demand for signs becomes the prototype of every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. In every case, I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I am stipulating terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. And that is how the Jews respond to the preached gospel. Give us a sign, Paul. We want more. Something we judge to be spectacular and deserving of our faith. The Greeks are no different. They seek after wisdom. It says Greeks seek wisdom. They demand all things to fit into their man-made system, their man-made worldview and philosophy. The point is they're the same as the, the Jews. This is the default response of fallen mankind. It's the height of arrogance. Demands God to conform to my criteria, to how I think the universe ought to be run. Again, D.A. Carson says, says like this, both the demand for signs and the pursuit of wisdom treat God as if we have the right to approve him, to examine his credentials. This is the most reprehensible wickedness, the most appalling insolence, the most horrific mark of our deep rebellion and lostness. And while the world demands something in addition to the gospel to satisfy their criteria to believe, look at what Paul gives them in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. He doesn't give in to their demands. Why not? Come on, Paul. Don't you know? Just give in a little bit. You can get more converts. Isn't that the most important thing? No. Because the goal of the gospel is to call men to repent of their self-idolatry. The goal of the gospel is to destroy the wisdom of fallen man, which would subject God to self. And should Paul give in? Should he capitulate? He would be undermining the very purpose of the gospel, leaving man in his rebellion. Rather, he simply preaches Christ and him crucified. That's it. He doesn't modify the message. He doesn't add other things to it to make it more attractive. He knows it looks like folly. He knows it's going to be rejected left and right. And look at this rejection in verse 23. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. You can't have a crucified Messiah. God cursed on the tree. Scandalous stumbling block. 
To Gentiles, it is folly, foolishness, moronic. It doesn't fit with the way we conceive the universe. And with these two, Paul says Jews and Gentiles, he's just summarized all of humanity. This is the default response of humanity to the gospel, Paul is saying. But some do respond. Look at verse 24. This is amazing. It's not because Paul modifies the message for them. It's not because these are some especially wise and intelligent. We've already seen that can't be the case. What is the decisive factor that brought these people to faith rather than others? Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So to Jews and Gentiles, the gospel is folly and a stumbling block, but some Jews and some Gentiles respond to it as it is the very power of God, not a stumbling block, and as it is the very wisdom of God and not folly. Why? What does it say? Verse 24, but to those who are, what does it say? Called. This is not the general call of the gospel. We know that because Paul is giving the general call of the gospel and it's rejected left and right. No, in Paul, God's calling is always effectual. It creates what it commands. Let there be light and there's light. Those whom God calls always believes. And those who believe do so for no other reason than they have been called by God. God is the decisive factor. Paul preaches a gospel rejected by the world and some believe. Why? God in his great mercy called them. And you too may have believed the gospel. I pray you have. You exercised faith. You made a conscious decision. You exercised your will. If you haven't, you're not a Christian. But how in the world did you, a fallen, enslaved to your own wisdom and self-idolatry person, come to submit yourself to a message like this? Grace. God called you. That is the ultimate factor. He opened your eyes. He made you alive. He worked in you. He said to your dead soul, live. He gave you faith and repentance. That's what happened here. And before we move on, let me just point out that if you conclude from this, that, well, if God is sovereign, then I don't need to pray. I don't need to evangelize. You've totally missed it. What is Paul doing in this passage? He's preaching. He's preaching the gospel. In other words, the truth that God must call people before they'll believe the gospel is not a hindrance to our evangelism or our prayer. It is the greatest motivation for prayer and evangelism. If God were not sovereign, if it were up to me to open eyes and to create faith, I would have given up a long time ago. Can't do it. And is this truth, that through the proclamation of the gospel, God calls people to life, that we can have great confidence. It's where Paul's confidence rested. And so look at verse 25. It wraps up this section. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The 
point is that God is not just a little bit stronger and a little bit wiser. The point is that he's completely outsmarted fallen humanity. God has so worked and so designed his gospel that even man's rejection of it redounds to his glory. In other words, God always wins. The gospel always wins. God will be honored and man humbled either through man's repentance and faith in the gospel to his salvation or man's rejection and condemnation. But either way, God will glorified. So in the gospel, God is overturning the wisdom of the wise through a foolish, culturally unacceptable message. Next, God is also in the process of overturning the boasts of the boastful through saving a foolish people, a culturally unacceptable body of believers. Verses 26 to 31. The gospel message is not only God's instrument to shame the wise, but God has intentionally saved certain people in order to expose the world's value system for what it is. Worthless. Absolutely worthless. Look at verses 26 to 29. Paul tells us that God is in the process of destroying human-centered boasting. How has he done this? Well, look at verse 26. Paul now zooms in. He calls the people to look back to verse 24. Think about the calling. He says, for consider your calling. So we just said you've been called, brought to life. That's the decisive factor in your faith. Consider your calling. Take a close look at it. That is, at who you were when God granted you faith and salvation. Paul says, not many of you were wise according to the flesh, according to human standards, when you were called. Not many of you were powerful when you were called. Not many were of noble birth when you were called. In other words, the wise, the powerful, those with pedigree, those are the ones the world calls great. Those are the values of the world. But Paul says here that God actually did not call many of those kind of people to faith in the gospel. Notice Paul does not say not any. He says not many. Church in Corinth actually had a few of these um, wealthy, powerful, influential people. But the point is that for the most part, those whom God called were the nobodies of society. And looking around at our church, looking around at the church all over the world, you can clearly see this is the case. In China, the vast majority of believers are in the countryside, the nobodies, the people looked down upon. This is often used not as a support for Christianity, but as an accusation against it, right? Only the nobodies are Christians. Only the not-so-smart, none of the elites are Christians. That's how it was viewed in Paul's day. It's how it's still viewed. But get this, far from this being a strike against the gospel, Paul here tells us that the opposite is true. It's not a strike against us that most of the elites in the world reject the gospel. In fact, it is God's plan and method of overturning all the world boasts in to give them success. The point is that before God, all these things are worthless. Look at verse 27. Look at how Paul switches the verbs. We would expect him to say something like this. Not many wise were called, but God called the foolish. That's not what he says. He says, but God chose. 
what is foolish in the eyes of the world. Not many wise were called, but God chose the foolish. God's calling and God's election always go together. Why does God call some people to faith? It's because he chose them according to his own purpose and grace. Paul tells us that God intentionally chooses and calls those who are counted by the world as foolish, as weak, non-influential, the nobodies. The point is that God's calling and his election are not based upon anything a person would offer to God. What man boasts in this life holds no sway in God's economy. It means nothing. It may influence man, but not God. In fact, God intentionally chooses the things that are nothing just to make this point. The point is that anything we have is owing exclusively to the grace of God. He loved us and chose us because he loved us and he chose us. That's it. There's nothing in you that attracted his eye. It's free. It's unconditional. He could very well have not chosen and called you. That's the point. If you're a believer, it's because he mercied you. Now, I know these doctrines are not easy. It might sound unfair, sound un unloving. People misuse these doctrines. I've heard people say that we shouldn't even talk about these things because we can't understand them anyway. They just create division in the church. Why, why bring them up? But get this, Paul apparently does think that we should know what it means that God chose us. Paul apparently does think that these doctrines of sovereign grace are not only important, but essential to understanding God's purposes in and through the gospel. You got to get this. The purpose is to create deep humility and great thanksgiving. There's a song we sing here sometimes by Isaac Watts called How Sweet and Awesome is the Place. I think this is how these doctrines should affect us. Listen. It says, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. What's the answer he gives us? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sins. All we have is mercy, mercy, mercy. That's what God is doing. Look at God's two purposes now in verse 27 to 28. Why does he do this? Why does he do it in this way? God chose what is foolish to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the things that are. The idea behind being put to shame is to have all your eggs in one basket and all your expectations here, and it, and it, and it failed you. You're, you're, you're put to shame. You're shown to have been foolish for hoping in this place. All that the world has hoped in for success before man and God have proven worthless. That's the point. Shown to be ultimately foolish. That's what God is after. Overturning all that the world boasts in for 
success. Before God, it's meaningless. And look at how this ends, verse 29. So that, here's the ultimate goal, all flesh might not boast before God. In the end, nobody will beat their chest in front of God, as though God owed them anything, as though they gained God through something in themselves. God has intentionally set himself against such values. And before we move on, if these doctrines of of God's unconditional choice and calling produce pride in your life, you failed to understand them. What a contradiction. The purpose of these doctrines are meant to lay you on your face in the dust before God. They're meant to gut you of any pride before God. They're meant to produce the deepest humility in your life. You have nothing and are nothing to commend yourself to God. And if you're a believer, the ultimate reason is God mercied you. That's it. Sovereign grace. So that no man might boast before God. We're almost done. Look at the next goal, verses 30 to 31. God does all of this, not just to destroy human-centered boasting, but to secure God-centered boasting. It says, from him you are in Jesus Christ. That is... Again, what we've just seen, from his doing, from his working, owing to him alone that you were in union with Christ, a believer. And not just that, but in Christ now you have everything, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Why? What is the goal? Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul is, in effect, asking the Corinthians, how is it that you are boasting in these worldly values of wisdom and power and influence? Don't you realize that God stands opposed to these things? In fact, most of you weren't these things when God called you. How is it that you've now started to use these as evaluations for success in ministry or as a standard for spirituality? And the question comes to us as well. Have we begun to boast in what the world boasts in? Have we begun to be ashamed of those the gospel has reached, the nobodies, forgetting that God is intentionally opposing the world's value system? Give you a good diagnostic test. Do we subtly feel less ashamed in the gospel when we can find some celebrity or some great elite person out there that says they're a Christian? Oh, okay, good, good. They're Christians. I don't feel so bad anymore. I'm afraid we are um, far more infected um, with worldly value systems than we realize. The call is for us to see that who we are, the message we proclaim, and the people God has saved stands at odds with the culture. It's supposed to. It's his purpose to overcome it. Well, we're almost finished. Look at now the final stage, chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5, God is in the process of overturning the confidence of the self-confident through a foolish preacher. Culturally unacceptable method. Corinth was known for its orators, traveling teachers. Many of them often traveled around like salesmen, selling a new message or a teaching. In fact, they were the message. Their content was secondary. People came to pay big money just to listen to them. 
And they came with high-sounding oratory in order to to attract people to themselves and their teaching. And if anyone bought into the message, it wasn't because of the power of the message, but because of the power of the orator. And these were the expected values of traveling teachers. But look at Paul's resolve in verses 1 through 2. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It's literally highness of speech or worldly wisdom. Again, the purpose of this high speech was to attract attention to self, to sell a message based on one's abilities. Now, it wasn't that Paul didn't like eloquence or that he was just a bad communicator. The point is that Paul intentionally avoided promoting the gospel in a way that would get converts based upon his winsomeness. If Paul or anyone else seeks to preach the gospel, in this way, the gospel becomes nothing more than a product to be sold. The transforming power of the gospel is lost. And man, this is done all the time in American churches today. You can get big crowds, you can get lots of converts this way, by highlighting the intelligence or the relevance of the the speaker. But when the gospel is presented this way, what people come away saying is, wow, what a great speaker, not what a great savior. So in verse 2, Paul resolves saying, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The point is not that Paul threw all knowledge out the window. Simply, he determined that if he was going to speak anything, it was going to be in relation to the gospel in order to more fully and clearly unpack his message. His rule was that if it wasn't going to help communicate the message, he wanted nothing to do with it. Man, that has a lot of implications for us, but let's move on. Verses 3 to 5 Not only did Paul not parade himself, but he also rested in the gospel as all-powerful. Look at what it says. It says, And I, when I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He rested in the power of the gospel alone not his strength, to get converts. His point is that according to worldly standards, his message and his method should not have had any effect upon those in Corinth. He came in weakness and in trembling, probably a reference to all of his sufferings that he had experienced, certainly something that these successful orders never would have experienced. The point is, is that his coming should not have had at verse 4. It says, it was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, the very conversion of the Corinthians was testimony, gave demonstrable evidence to the power of the gospel. It is clear that the people who came to faith, came to faith not because they were manipulated or emotionally swept away through Paul's eloquence or power, but because of the simple message of the gospel Alone, And that's what Paul says. Look how he ends. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because only faith in the power of God is saving faith. Paul came with a foolish message and presented it in a foolish way. 
Why? So that those who came to faith would do so for no other reason than that in the gospel they saw the wisdom, the glory, and the power of God. In this way, true converts are made and God gets the glory. There's so many applications for us. Um, In closing, let me just give you one. We have been sent to do the impossible. Jesus told Paul in Acts 26, 14, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Jesus sends Paul and us to do an impossible task. That's the point. I can't open anyone's eyes. Neither can you. I can't raise the dead. I can't grant faith and repentance. Nevertheless, that's our mission. And we do it through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. That's it. Nothing else. Anything else will do what Paul just said. Gut the gospel of its power. Guys, this should be so encouraging, so freeing for you. You don't need to be more winsome. You don't need to be more witty or more anything. Faithfully, patiently, graciously proclaim Christ. Make him known. It's not up to you. One of my seminary professors said, we are like straws in a chocolate milkshake. I'm not the point. I'm the straw. I get it, bring it to people's mouths, and I'm I'm gone. The point is the gospel. Press the gospel. Press God's law on the consciences of your hearers. Make much of Christ. Let the Spirit produce fruit. And God will succeed in overturning the confidence of the self-confidence. So this evening, I just want to remind you that the mocking that the gospel receives, it's not evidence that it's lost touch. It's not evidence that it's lost power. It's not evidence that it's not the wisdom of God. In fact, because it is God's power and his wisdom, all these things happen in the world. That is why they respond to it this way. And our calling is simply to preach Christ crucified. Make him known. Share him with your friends and family and and co-workers, and then rest confident that God always works. He always accomplishes his purposes. When men reject, he ironically only fulfills the purpose for which God sent the gospel. When men repent, God is honored as well. As men are humbled and saved. So as we see the culture disintegrating around us, Christianity posed and and distanced and and looked down against, gospel's not failing. Um, We're called to be bold, to stand, proclaim it. We don't know what may happen. I pray that God send an awakening in America, wake people up. He might. He would do it through faithful gospel proclamation, not if we add any kind of bells and whistles to to the gospel. And he might not. In either way, he will accomplish his purpose. The gospel will succeed. It will win. So these are three stages of God's plan through the gospel. He's in the process of overturning the wisdom of the world through a foolish message. He's in the process of overturning the boast of the boastful through a foolish people. And he's in the process of overturning the confidence of the self-confident through a foolish preacher. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we Thank you. There is 
no reason in me why you love me. And yet you love me. You loved us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your work. Thank you for calling us to life. Thank you for granting us faith and repentance and showing us, taking the blinders off so that we see the gospel. It is glory. It is power. It's wisdom. It's all of you. Father, we have many around us that we know don't see it. They're blind to it. These truths give us confidence to boldly proclaim it and know that your gospel never fails. But Lord, so long as they're alive, there is still hope. There's still time. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to be bold, to be clear, knowing the powers in the gospel through your spirit. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray that you send awakening through faithful proclamation of your word. But Lord, if you do not help us, Lord, be rooted in these truths to stand bold, proclaim Christ. And it's all for your glory, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.